Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? I hope everyone is well. It is 1 o'clock Sunday, December the 20th, 2020. And that means it's time for this, the 99th trip down the homeward path. We are almost to 100. Almost there. My name is Adam, and I've got a few questions for you. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? I mean, I really, really hope so. Because, I mean, you're you're here watching a, well, I say watching, listening to a podcast about it. I mean, if you're not a fan, I don't know what you're doing here. You're just being honest. But in spite of that, you know, do you have something else that is more pressing than any commitment you might have to magic. A job, a career, a spouse, a partner, children, any and all of the above. I don't know. I understand it myself. I've got a wife and three children of my own. But in spite of that, are you still actively seeking improvement on your magic game on a regular basis. Listen, if this sounds like you, I hope you got cards left in your library because we're about to dredge up some stuff you probably should have already known. <laughs> so together we can go through and look at the three B's of budgety, budgetary magical self-improvement. And it's a, it's a mouthful when it happened. But first... A word from our sponsor. Our sponsor is PureMTGO.com. PureMTGO is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. One of the best places to get all the content you could ever have considered wanting and needing. And, I mean, it doesn't matter what you're looking for. They've probably got content for you. There's also our parent network to keep in mind. They're the reason I'm here, constructedcriticism.com. I wouldn't be able to do this the way that I do it now without the belief that they had in me early on. And that's, that's not an exaggeration. That's not a humble thing. It's the truth. So go check them out. Check out the rest of the content on the network. Listen, everybody's doing some really cool stuff these days. So go check it all out. And while you're browsing the web, you know, you can do me a solid. If you love this show enough to help me keep doing it, head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg if you want to support me in a more direct fashion. Now, with all the shills out of the way, let's dive into our first segment each week. We were talking about the three Bs, and the first one is Budget Spotlight. Our budget spotlight is a segment every week where we talk about an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a commander-oriented card that I feel either doesn't get enough love or gets way too much play to justify how low its price tag is. So, for the uncommon this week, this one is... I honestly expected this card to cost more. Uh, the card in question is Shaman of the Pack. Shaman of the Pack is uh, black and a green for a 3-2. And when it enters the battlefield, target opponent loses life equal to the number of other elves you control. So, first and foremost, you can have worse and more expensive ways to win the game. I mean, that's just the long and short of it. That is the the elegant sort of thought process here. It's two mana, 
win the game. It's also a creature that costs three mana or less, so it can be flipped off of Collected Company. We all know what this card is going to get played in. It's getting played in Elves. It is not getting played in a fair green-black aggro deck. You are playing this card to deal somewhere close to 10 to 15 points of life loss out of nowhere and end your opponent's existence. <laughs> that, is your, that is your goal. But, as embarrassing as it might seem, this thing's also just not awful on turn two. Especially considering its color combination, considering the pedigree of said color combination, you know even if it goes away, it's not going away for long. Black and green are known for their capability and not just capability, but desire to recover creatures whether directly from the graveyard to the battlefield or directly from the graveyard to the hand in order to recast, that's kind of what these decks are here for. That's, that's what they thrive on. So, I'd be lying if I said I, I, I didn't think this card was at least reasonable as a two-drop, just turn one, mana creature, turn two, shaman of the pack, ping you for one, I've got a three-two, if it connects, that means I have to deal less damage later. And all of this wrapped into one neat little 25 cent package. So again, uncommon just bringing the pain when it comes to value. Uh, win the game for a quarter, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. A rare is from Ikoria. It is Umori the Collector. I have a little bit of a theme where I keep going through these companions that are not named Luris because, I mean, I mentioned Zirda, I mentioned Yorian, I mentioned Umori is right in there, right in the mix. Uh, Umori the Collector is three and then double hybrid, if I'm not mistaken. It might be two and double hybrid. It's either four or five mana, either way. Black or green for the hybrid mana. And what it says, uh, the companion condition is all non-land cards in your library or in your starting deck must contain the same card type. So if you're playing one creature, they all have to be creatures. If you're playing one enchantment, they all have to be enchantments. If they're playing one instant, they all have to be instants. It's not exactly rocket surgery here. Umori wants homogeneity. I may or may not have butchered that word, but that's beside the point. Umori wants all of your cards to be in the same wavelength, but Umori also is willing to pay you off for that. Uh, because when Umori enters the battlefield, you name a card type, and cards you cast of that type cost one less. So it is a ramp spell, sort of to the extreme, potentially, depending on what your, what your hand looks like at the time. So cards costing one less is, typically speaking at least, a pathway to nonsense. There's, there's a lot of things that can go sideways for your opponent real quick. When you introduce the words, my spells cost less, into the equation. In some decks, it's just a free roll companion. Look no further than the deck we talked about last week in Brew with Simic Mutate, or Sultai now, or whatever. Whatever kind of Mutate pile you're looking to build, as long as it's got green and or black in it. If you're playing all creatures, Umori is a free roll companion. So, you know, if you're considering between Into the Royal or Brazen Borrower, and that's the, the sticking point for you, maybe just play the Brazen Borrower just to get the free companion. But the thing that's really intriguing to me, and the thing I can't wait to see, it's going to take somebody more creative than me to do it. I can't wait to see the day when somebody builds an Umori the Collector deck that is not built around creatures. I'm really excited for that day. 
that's that's what's going to get me that's what's going to get me pumped if i see the umori instance deck or i see the umori sorceries deck or the umori enchantments deck heaven forbid the umori artifact deck like it gets really interesting the further down you go into that further down that rabbit hole you're willing to go it gets more and more and more interesting and if y'all know anything about me y'all know i like it when my stuff is interesting whether it's good or not <laughs> so umori costs you the grand sum total of 50 cents and you can do a lot worse than 50 cents for interesting all right a lot of these more interesting cards cost a lot of money. But especially if you're considering running it as companion, 50 cents for the one copy you'll need, you can do worse. If you want to play some more in the main deck, I guess knock yourself out. That's up to you. Uh, moving on to our Mythic. Our Mythic this week is Vraska Golgari Queen from Guilds of Ravnica. She is two, a green, and a black, buys you four loyalty. Plus two, you may sacrifice another permanent. If you do, draw a card and gain one life. Minus three, destroy target non-land permanent with converted mana cost three or less. And minus nine, you get an emblem with when a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, that player loses the game. So, there's a little bit to unpack here. First of all, the plus two is a little bit deceptive. It feels like something you really want to build around. But as somebody who played a fair amount of Rasko Golgari Queen in just green-black mid-range, this thing is reasonable as flood insurance. And I use that term a lot, especially when I'm just talking to somebody about a deck build. But when I, when I refer to something as flood insurance, I mean it's something to do with your mana when you draw all of it. Like when you just hit the pocket of all of your lands. If Raska's sitting on the table while you're flooding out, you can turn excess lands into cards. So on its face, like, if that's the fail state of your four-mana walker is to jump up to six loyalty and trade off a land you didn't need for a chance at another card, you can do a whole lot worse. whole lot worse. But it's even it's even more fun than that if you if you dig deeper because the the second you get the tiniest bit of uh, of synergy with that sacrifice trigger, whether it's in the form of splashing another color for a card like Mayhem Devil, or just playing a creature that can come back from the graveyard every turn like a Scrap Heap Scrounger or Silver Smoke Ghoul or something along those lines. Just the, the very notion of being able to sacrifice a permanent in order to fix my cards is really appealing to me. Especially if I can get any level of value off of the sacrifice itself. So, I mean, top to bottom, four mana... That's that that's your fail state. That's the worst version of this card. You also have the minus three, which is just abrupt decay that leaves behind a planeswalker with one loyalty. And again, that's everything your mid-range deck wants to do. Kill your creature, leave behind a planeswalker that you have to exchange a card for. Now my four mana play is a two for one. And we're alright with that. We are all the way on board with that. We are not going to be jumping that ship. And then, of course, the ultimate being the ultimate should probably win you the game. And in this case, it definitely does, as long as you are playing some number of creatures in your deck. And Vraska can be yours for the low, low price of $3.50. One might say, about Tree Fitty, and that would be about the time that I realized that person was a reptilian creature from the Paleolithic era, and I would have to decline said offer. Bonus points if you if you uh, if you know the reference. I promise not to make too many more about that show. It just hit me; had to make it. 
And last but not least, our commander-focused card is Varl's the Scarstriped. Varl's is a three-mana creature. I cannot remember how big it is. It's like a 2-3, three, 3-3, three, three, maybe even a 3-4. I genuinely do not remember the, the power and toughness of this creature because that is not the part I'm interested in. The part I'm interested in on Varl's the Scarstriped is Varl's says... Each creature in your graveyard has scavenge with a scavenge cost equal to its mana cost. So you can essentially pay your creature's mana cost to exile it and then put that many plus one plus one counters on another creature you control. So cat out of the bag first and foremost. If you want to build a deck for Commander and the goal is to create as much of the flavor of the Golgari as you possibly can. Varls. That's the one. Because you are using your dead creatures to power up your not dead creatures. And that is the most Golgari thing that you can do. But more than that, like, as a commander, it's interesting because it can scavenge really big but really cheap creatures that normally would have drawbacks. Cards like Death Shadow, cards like Nixithid. Uh, cards like Lupine Prototype that have high power and toughness but low converted mana cost, you can scavenge their counters onto your Varls and kind of operate a sort of Voltron strategy where you're just going to keep swinging and they're just going to keep having to block or you're going to find a way to get them through and kill them. It's also worth noting that this card is insane in Skullbriar decks where the counters don't go away when the Skullbriar moves to the command zone. <laughs> so, I mean, that that ups the ante. You know, you pay, you pay three mana to put seven counters on my creature, on, on my commander, and it's going to attack, and oh, wait, those counters aren't going anywhere. I know you killed it, but he's going to come back and, get, and, get, and have them still on there. Going to continue beating you to death. It's what we're here to do. And it is super cool. So. And last but not least about Varls. That's interesting there. Varls is actually just not a dead card in your 60 card formats. It's a card that's seen some play in the past in modern. In the uh, early iterations of the Death Shadow deck. When Lingering Souls was still a card people really wanted to play. Uh, you would frequently just play on turn five. You would treat Varls as a five drop alongside your Traverse the Ovenwald because you would Traverse for Varls, cast Varls, scavenge your Death Shadow and put 13 plus one plus one counters on your Lingering Souls token and kill your opponent out of nowhere. And that's super cool. Excuse me. Or put 13 plus 1 plus 1 counters on your existing Death Shadow and make it so stinking big that it doesn't matter how they block. They have to kill it before it matters. But whatever the case, Varl's the Scar Striped can be yours for the low, low price of 75 cents. And this is definitely one of those cards, even if you're picking it up for 60 card formats, you're only going to need one. That's the reality of the situation. You only need one. So you can do a lot worse than that, too. <laughs> but that wraps up Budget Spotlight for this week as we move on to segment two, Brew of the Week. Brew of the Week is where we spotlight either a deck that I've built or that someone else has built and I've either found or been sent said deck to sort of profile and get a general synopsis of what it's about, what it does, you know, what, what the core concept is, what the strengths and weaknesses are, and kind of an overall outlook on how it looks like it would perform. And in this case, for this deck, we're talking about Lurus Rock in Modern. And I know what you're thinking. Why would we not be playing Jund? 
there's a few reasons. First and foremost, budgetary concerns. They are a thing, and more people need to respect them. But even going the other way on that, even you know trying to kind of take budget concerns out of the equation a little bit, Green Black has its own set of, of valuable tools at its disposal. There are some unreasonably powerful cards you get by touching the red splash. But those cards are very expensive and outside of a few niche cases, I'm not sure how much they really impact the viability of the deck from a competitive standpoint. All the core pieces are still there. And what I mean by core pieces is when we're talking about Lurus Rock, or we're talking about rock in modern in general, whether it's Jund, Abzan, Green Black, Sultai, whatever. We're talking about rock in modern. We are talking about a deck that wants to marry cheap disruption, efficient threats, and efficient removal spells together. Alongside some form of card advantage engine. And I, I say some form because it tends to change as the deck iterates itself. Sometimes it'll be card draw, sometimes it'll be graveyard recursion, sometimes it'll be a heavy focus on aggressively discarding the opponent's hand, because if we get into a top deck war, my cards in isolation are better than yours. Whatever. In this case, this deck wants to play Lurus of the Dream Den. That is the rock piece that it wants to play. Now, the list that I was sent did not play Lurus's Companion, but I would argue that you absolutely could if it's something you're interested in. Your key pieces are cards like Tarmogoyf, cards like... Um, what is it? Tarmogoyf cards like Dark Confidant, cards like uh, Thoughtseize. And none of those interfere with your ability to play Lurus as your companion. And obviously, like, Jun gets to do it even better because they get to play Ren and Six, which is just an absurd magic card and more people should be playing it because it's ridiculous but I digress uh, when you marry cheap disruption and threats and cheap removal all together into one cohesive little shell where you can play a litany of powerful cards together. You're going to be able to grind just about anybody you play. And that is the goal. At its core, that's what you're trying to do. So, as much as I love the concept of playing like more traditional John with Liliana the Veil and all of that, we got we got some tools here. But when we're talking about customization of green black rock like it always feels like so much of the deck is set in stone that there's not any real reason to customize it but there's really nothing that could be further from the truth because of what position the rock occupies in modern the idea behind the deck is to be as flexible as possible and just try to sort of awkwardly value your opponent out you're, you're winning in one-and-a-half card advantages. And one of the ways you do that reliably in this shell is going to be with Lurus. And that's one of the ways you can turn it into more of a potential blowout. Is to take the idea of playing Lurus as your, your card, advantage in, blah, card advantage engine, if I can remember how to speak my native language. Use Lurus as your card advantage engine and lean heavy into it. The idea of playing more permanents in your deck as ways to get through it as interactive pieces. You know, in Jund, you can do it with Seal of Fire. In this shell, you can do it with powerful sideboard cards like Seal of Primordium that 
destroys an artifact or enchantment and you can just buy it back with Lurus. Uh, you can do it with filtering effects like Vessel of Nascency or Stitcher Supplier that put things in the graveyard for Lurus to buy back. You can lean into cards like Call the Death Dweller to buy back your Dark Component or buy back your Lurus and then buy back another spell. Uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist would be something that would be of great interest to the Jund player. But even in this shell, a card like, uh, I mean, Confidant's good. Uh, Dusk Legion Zealot is embarrassing, but not unreasonable. Glint Sleeve Siphoner can be a poor man's Dark Confidant. And I only say poor man because I'm speaking from my experience as a poor man. <laughs> but you know, top to bottom, there's there's tools available if you want to lean more heavily into the Lurus deck. You know, make it more of a Lurus deck and less of a rock deck. Build, you know, try to take advantage of all the value that you get by playing your spells out of your, playing your creatures from your graveyard, playing your permanents from your graveyard. There's a lot to choose from. Even something as innocuous as a, as a Elvish Visionary. That's card advantage when it chump blocks an otherwise lethal attack and then you just play it again and draw another card. That thing functionally drew you like three cards because it's it added a turn to your opponent's clock, so that's another draw step. And then it drew you a card when it entered the battlefield and then it died and then it drew you another card when it entered the battlefield again. So, I mean, the, the secret to it, if the, the secret sauce, if you will, Anybody knows why that's funny? You know why it's funny. Uh, <laughs> but the secret sauce for, for Rock is the capacity to do something that's a little bit unfair in conjunction with all this fair stuff you're doing. And that's kind of what the Luris package brings to the table here. The ability to grind your opponent out in a way that they're not normally accustomed to being ground out by Golgari Rock. For sideboard options, I mean, I know this is going to sound weird, but hear me out. I am not opposed to the idea of playing Grab Digger's Cage in the sideboard of, Lur of Lurus Rock. Now let me tell you why. You are barely touching on Graveyard Synergy in this deck. Unless you buy further in and, you know, go all the way in on the idea. You are barely touching on the idea of using cards from your graveyard. You're not casting spells or putting creatures into the battlefield from your library. With the lone exception of when you control Lurus. That's your little bit of unfair. Well, here's the thing. Your opponents that are going to be using the graveyard are going to be doing a lot of unfair. They are way more interested in that thing not being on the table than you are. You could care less. If it's on the table and your opponent's not killing you, it is doing its job. And I would argue that a card like Grabdigger's Cage does its job phenomenally alongside a Lurus that your opponent has to treat as like another layer of protection. If you have the Cage on the battlefield and the Lurus on the battlefield, and they don't have the capacity to both remove the cage and kill you or set up their dominant board in one fell swoop. Well, now they've got to have two things. They've got to have a removal spell for Lurus and a way to get rid of the cage. Just makes it that much harder. Just a little bit more that they've got to try to find while you're beating them to death with 5-6 Tarmogoyfs and Lurus is 3-2. Like, we can do a lot worse than that. A whole lot worse than that. And then you've got access to some powerful sideboard color hosers. Uh, I mean, in, in black, you get access to... What is that card's name? I don't need... I guess I don't need to go super deep on the, the sideboard options because... Your sideboard options are what you need for your metagame, right? At its core, this deck is about flexibility. 
And I mean, that's really kind of the selling point for the, for the deck as a whole. You want to play your good, reasonable, cheap, good rate magic cards with ways to keep playing your good, reasonable, cheap rate magic cards. And that's okay. I like doing that. So, the other thing, the last thing I want to say about this deck before we move on to our main topic this week. One of the reasons I like this as a concept, it's, it's kind of two-pronged. One, you can build a similar version of this deck for Pioneer. With a little more of an emphasis on Delirium for cards like Grim Flayer and Traverse the Olvenwald and some, some Silver Bullets to go get, including the Lurus itself if you play them in the main deck. But more importantly, this deck offers an entry point into Modern. Modern decks are expensive and everybody knows it. But taking one of the, the tried and true formulas of the format and kind of spinning it back a little bit and saying, hey, what does this really need to succeed? Like, what does it really, really, really need? I know Renin 6 is really good. I know Lightning Bolt is Lightning Bolt. I know Croxa is really good. But what does this deck, at its basis level, at its core conceptual level, what does it need to function? Let's strip it down to that. And then instead of trying to inject power into it, let's inject redundancy so that it's going to be reliable. Reliability is one of the key facets of mid-range deck building. You want to know for you want to know within reasonable deviations that your deck is going to do the same thing every time you play it. It's going to do a reasonable job of drawing removal spells, threats, and disruption and be able to take the game over with the little bit of card advantage that it sees. And that's the, that's the, the draw to mid-range in the first place, especially in a format like Modern. It's the idea of making your opponents play the fair game that you want to play. And you don't have to be playing a third color in order to do that. So this offers a fantastic way to jump into Modern with both feet without having to sell lots of personal possessions or save up money for an unreasonably long time. So with that out of the way, let's move into our main topic this week. Our main topic, we've been doing this color series. We're finally on part 10, the last of the two color pairs. The last guild. Who the heck are the Golgari Swarm? They were introduced in fall 2004, 2004, 2005. Fall 2005 in Ravnica City of Guilds. They were an instant hit for my best friend Brett, who I originally wanted to have in this episode. I wanted to let my Golg my resident Golgari fanboy really kind of take lead on this episode, but he is a frontline healthcare worker in the middle of a pandemic. He could not get free in order to join me either in person because of possible exposure or remotely because he's just exhausted perpetually. And I don't blame him. So, with that in mind, what are they about? Well, from a lore perspective, they are the custodians and the cooks. They are the purveyors of food and sanitation of Golgari. They manage the sewers. They manage the, the food supply. And they deal with being the undertakers of society as well. And as you might expect, being the guild that tends to operate underground, in the sewers, in the, the, the weird, off-putting, smelling kitchens, you might imagine they're not super popular. They're not, uh, they're not very well revered among the citizens of the, of the plain. And you would be correct. 
That would be a very accurate, imaginative picture. The Golgari are, at their core, obsessed with perpetuating the cycle of life. Nothing that dies is useless. Nothing that dies doesn't have a purpose. They will find some way to put it back to use, whether in terms of food supply, fertilizer, uh, reanimated as a laborer by one of their many, many necromancers, whatever. The Golgari are all about putting death to use for the living. And unlike a lot of the other guilds that we've covered in this series, I'd argue unlike basically all of them, that has been the general overall theme for the colors of green and black together throughout the history of magic. Green being abundant life, black being abundant death, but then there being that common thread somewhere in the middle of repurposing them together. That is what the Golgari are all about, whether on Ravnica or any other plane. Look no further than Ikoria, um, Amonkhet. So what are the strengths and weaknesses when you put green and black together? Strength, number one, is recursive ability, grinding capacity. Between green's capability of generating little incremental snowballing bits of card advantage and black's capability especially in conjunction with green to buy things back one of the things about green and black together that make it so appealing for players is the fact that you never feel like you're out of a game you can do some weird stuff make some questionable decisions and find your way right back into a game that you thought you'd lost Recursion, recursion, recycling ability is one of those key tenets. And then you couple black's capability to interact very favorably with creatures. And green, albeit in a limited capacity, it interacts pretty well with non-creature permanents. Artifacts, enchantments, sometimes lands and planeswalkers. In extreme cases like Bramble Crush, where it's just non-creature permanent. Whatever the case may be, when you're signing up to play Golgari, a big draw to you is removal. You want the combination of efficient removal from black, you want somewhat versatile removal from green, you want the little bit of ramp you want I mean there's there's a lot on the table there's a lot on the menu to offer for the aspiring Golgari mage and there's a lot worse ways to go about playing your game than doing just that than, than making the game about how well your opponent can grind not how quickly your opponent can kill you if you don't do anything about it. And then when it comes to sideboard cards, obviously you have access to greens, artifact and enchantment removal. You have access to blacks, graveyard hosers, and uh, more, more linear removal. <laughs> but at its core, the, the key strength of Golgari is the grind. And that also lends itself to one of its weaknesses. It steadfastly wants to live in that mid-range space, sometimes to a fault. If you are a, a tempo-oriented deck, whether you're aggressively or defensively slanted, as a deck that's going to prioritize shutting off key turns and using them to further an overall agenda for what your deck is trying to do, you can prey on these mid-range decks. Look no further than the, the Mono Blue Tempo deck during its time in the spotlight. Right after uh, 
Ravnica Allegiance came out. Sorry. Struggling with my words today. Ravnica Allegiance gave us Hydroid Crisis and a number of other tools for the green-black deck to splash blue in order to touch on Crisis to draw a bunch of cards and dominate games. And that's okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. There's nothing inherently wrong with the idea of playing to grind it out that way. But the danger you run into when you're playing that, that style of deck is at some point your, your goal is to tap out for the most powerful thing you can do turn after turn after turn. And your opponent's going to have something to say about it. And if they have the right thing to say about it, they can not only cut off your turn, but also further theirs with a card like Essence Capture or a card like uh, God, I wish I had somebody here I could say help me with um, a card like Dive Down that stymies your removal spell and makes my creature into a blocker for the turn. Like All of that is reasonable. against a big dumb removal like an opponent casting Vraska's Contempt feels real bad when you have the dive down <laughs> that's just the long and short of it I mean and an opponent casting Hydra Crisis feels real bad when they were banking on not just the life gain from the ability, but the the counter spell going through, or the, the, the creature going through to block. And then you not only counter the creature, but you also put a counter on yours, and now you're applying pressure back. But even from the other side of it, like blue-white control had the, the Golgari dex number. The control decks had the Golgari dex number. Because yes, they could they could draw a bunch of cards, they could put some pressure on the board. But if you structured your control deck correctly, it didn't matter. They could do the thing, you just didn't care about it. And that's that's a scary proposition. When you're playing this collection of absurdly powerful magic cards and you play one of them and your opponent's like, eh whatever go ahead get your two creatures back I don't care you're not killing me here's to fairy hero of dominaria do something about it look it's a little embarrassing when you're on the other side of that so I mean at its core that is kind of one of the the weaknesses if you want to call it that of Kogari you are such a 45 55 deck against the field that an opponent who puts you in mind when they're building their decks and plays cards that line up particularly well against your most powerful ones can absolutely make you feel like you made the wrong choice in more than one more than one aspect of your life. So moving on, what is the mechanical identity of Golgari? Well, first and foremost, let's talk the, the printed mechanics, the ones with the little scarab watermark behind the card. The first one introduced in original Ravnica City of Guilds was Dredge. And oh my word, this stuff... Th this is a weird one, because it's kind of a History of Magic project, right? Early on, Dredge was wild, wild, bleh, widely considered fair. I'm going to say that again. Early on in its time in Magic, Dredge was widely considered a fair mechanic. The far and away best Dredge card was Life from the Loam. That should give you an idea of the level of competitive usage Dredge got. When Life from the Loam is the best card you have to offer as a mechanic, that's probably a good thing for the way your mechanic was designed. For those of you who don't know what Dredge does, it's Dredge followed by a number, and in lieu of drawing a card, you can instead send that number of cards, you can mill that number of cards in order to return the Dredge card from your graveyard to your hand.
And early on, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit, Brett and I played a fair amount of grindy, ugly, mid-rangey dredge piles. We were using Graveshell Scarab. We were using Life from the Loam. We played Stinkweed Imp. Uh, Sfogthos the Restless Tomb as a creature land was a legitimate threat in our decks. But then Future Side happened. And we got Narcamoeba and Bridge from Below alongside Dread Return from Time Spiral. And that's when, we, that's when the world found out Dredge was actually just busted. Because it was a way to get cards into your graveyard quickly and efficiently. And you didn't really have to work for it. You just needed some amount of discard and draw effects. And a card like Megas of the Bazaar in Future Sight was more than happy to oblige you. Bizarre, it's it's Bizarre Baghdad on a two-mana creature. But you would tap your Magus, draw two, discard three. Well, if we have two dredge creatures in the graveyard, we can dredge them both back instead of drawing the card, put all our bridge from belows and Narcomoebas into the graveyard, the Narcomoebas will come back. Sacrifice three creatures for dread return. Bridge from below triggers, make a bunch of zombies, uh, Dread Return brings back Flame Kinzella and somebody dies. That was the busted Dredge deck, and it persisted for a long time. Uh, it's it's still around in modern. Every once in a while, the the format just sets itself just right for it, and a card like Bridge from Below comes along and dominates things for a while. Or a card like Benjamin, or a card like, I don't know, Hogag, who really benefited from being dumped into the graveyard aggressively. So, Dredge went from a fair mechanic to one of the most busted things in the history of Magic, basically over the course of a year. Magic's a fun game, folks. Uh, moving on, the second printed mechanic from Return to Ravnica was Scavenge. And a card with Scavenge, you can pay the cost that appears after Scavenge on the card in order to exile the creature from the graveyard and put its power in plus one, plus one counters onto a creature you control. So you are trading the power of a dead creature and infusing it into an alive creature. And... I've talked a lot about how the mechanics from uh, Guilds of Ravnica and Ravnica Allegiance felt a little bit lazy. From both a design and flavor standpoint. But I would like to point out that the mechanics from Return to Ravnica and Gatecrash were just mwah, chef's kisses from a flavor standpoint. It's so nice. Scavenge is just the epitome of Golgari existence. And ultimately, Varl's The Scar Striped was the only card with the mechanic that ever really saw play. So, as much of a flavor win as it was, it was not very good. So... I mean, I guess that's kind of our lesson to take away from this, right? Even, even, even when something is really cool and there's a lot of incentive to try it out, it doesn't always mean it's good. And that brings us to our last mechanic that has been printed with the Gorgori watermark, which is Undergrowth. And Undergrowth was a shorthand way of letting you know that a card is going to reference the number of creatures in your graveyard. And get a boost based on that. Uh, Molder Hulk would cost one less mana for each creature in your graveyard. Um, Golgari Raiders would enter the battlefield with a plus one plus one counter on it for each creature in your graveyard. Um, what is it? Necrotic. Was it Necrotic Blight? Necrotic Wound. That's what it was. Necrotic Wound would 
give a, give a creature and it, it would be minus X minus X where X is the number of car of creatures in your graveyard so on and so forth the only real undergrowth cards to see any sort of competitive play were Azani Thousand Eyed and then there were some of the dedicated undergrowth decks that were playing Mulder Hulk and Raiders and a couple of cute ones that were playing Lotleth Giant because lots of damage out of nowhere is always fun right magic's fun folks But at its core, it wasn't a mechanic that, that rewarded you for buying all the way in. There was nothing about it that was like, no, yeah, no, 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 no. Put lots of creatures in your graveyard, and I'm going to make sure you get paid off in a big way. The closest thing we got to that was Azani. And it saw play as a one to two of in the green-black mid-range deck as a six drop that would make some creatures and give you something to do with mana. That's not all that appealing. So the traditional Golgari mid-range deck kind of won out there and, you know, we were just playing explore creatures and find and finality and uh, Vraska, Relic Seeker, and Izani. And just valuing our opponents to death with removal spells. Ravenous Chupacabra was a, was a really good magic card in standard that year. That gives you an idea of how far magic's come. A four mana two two, a a four a, a, a necrotal was a playable, and not just a playable but a desirable magic card in 2019. How far magic's come in the last year, right? But even the the non-printed mechanics, the mechanical tropes that they tend toward with Golgari are all very similar. They tend toward self mill. They tend toward recycling abilities. Uh, returning creatures to the hand, returning creatures from the graveyard to the battlefield, uh, using creatures in your graveyard to fuel other effects. There's a little bit of an emphasis on counters, not just plus one, plus one counters the way it is with Simic, but counters in general, because we had uh, plus one, plus one counters in some of the sets, like the Tarkir block and some other places, Kaladesh, we also had minus one, minus one counters in Amonkhet and uh, Shadowmoor or Eventide, rather. Amonkhet and Eventide. We had the ability counters, the keyword counters from Ikoria. All the way around, these are, these are, these are a color pair that really likes to have the ability to enhance or de enhance their creatures or degrade yours. And if they're degrading theirs, it's with the understanding that yours are going to get degraded worse. So at its, at its basest point, these decks are really, really simple. From, from a mechanical identity standpoint, Throughout the years, Magic has done a reasonable job of really conveying what the identity of Golgari is, even before it was known as Golgari. Now, I know there's some mana creatures and there's some tribal themes with stuff like elves or what have you, but at its basest core, the Golgari deck is about the grind and not much else. So, with that in mind, what are some of the decks that tend to pop up? Oh, I don't know. Mid-range, value mid-range, aggressive mid-range. Sometimes there's a stompy deck, admittedly. Sometimes there's a stompy deck out there, and it's actually very cool. Uh, we, we had it for Dominaria, Ixalan. It was mono green, and it would touch on enough black to play removal and... Uh, some additional creatures maybe a planeswalker or two and that's a cool place to be I love seeing it when a color combination kind of breaks out of its own shell does something a little bit against the grain compared to how it normally operates normally functions love it 
Now, when it comes to uh, long game decks, I mean, I don't really have any. If you're playing a long game green-black deck, it's because you've splashed blue into it. Um, you've got the the pseudo unfair graveyard decks, your your dredge decks, your dredgeless dredge decks, your hogak decks, things of that nature that buy all the way into the amount of graveyard synergy that these two colors have together. And those decks are either unplayable or busted, and they are very rarely just fine. They're either horrible or awesome. Not much in between. So, I mean, that kind of sums up the general synopsis of Golgari. You are buying into Golgari. If you are an aspiring Golgari mage, you are doing this with the understanding that you are going to have to embrace the grind. You are going into this understanding that games are going to be ugly, gritty, hem-hawing over individual card decisions, individual decisions regarding your removal spells, so on and so forth. There's going to be a lot of a lot of sweat and bullets when you play Golgari. Is it worth it? I would argue that it is. Because it's one of the easiest ways to help you understand a format is to just hand you a pile of disruption and removal spells and let you play a bunch of games. Because you will lose a bunch of them early on until you start to get a feel for what everybody's doing. And then once you do, once you understand what everybody's doing, your skill ceiling with your deck bumps way up. And that's really something I love in a combination of colors. To say nothing of the capacity to branch out into other color combinations down the line. So if I had to recommend a color combination for somebody who was just considering starting Magic, I'd be hard-pressed to find something other than Golgari. It's the, the perfect way to try to kind of make Magic fair. Because you can get just absolutely bodied by red decks and hate Magic. You can get absolutely pigeonholed and worn down and ground down by uh, control decks and hate magic. But the Golgari deck, when played correctly, when you understand what your games are about, gives you a chance to win both of those games. And that's something we can all agree is a good thing. So with that in mind, that's all I've got for this week. You got questions, you got comments, you got concerns. Leave them down below in the comment section if you're on YouTube. Uh, while you're there, don't forget to like and subscribe for you know to let me know you like the content that I'm doing. Uh, you want to send them to me directly? Send them to me on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. On uh, the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. Um, patrons of the show, obviously, you have access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord server. And with that in mind, remember, we're, we're off next week for the holiday. And then we'll be back the week after with episode 100, start of the year. Can't wait to can't wait to jump in. We've got a very special guest coming on. Save your dad jokes. I have been. They're going to want to hear all of them. I think they're really going to appreciate it. Um And yeah. Just remember everybody's dealing with stuff right now. Holiday season's rough. All the everything going on in the US is rough right now on the, the grand scale or even the micro scale here in Tennessee where we're like the third highest COVID infection rate in the nation, 
I think. It's not good. Not good at all. So, when dealing with people, remember words of wisdom from Peter Capaldi. Never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Remember, hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So, reduce, reuse, recycle, and be kind. We'll catch you in two weeks.